0: God sent His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already, because he does not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. But as many as received Him, to them He gave them the right to become children of God, to those who believe in His name. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. So before we get into the word of God this afternoon, let's prepare ourselves with First uh, 1 John 1, 1.9, which says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This ensures the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, so perchance we've committed sin whether it's mental, overt, or verbal, that allows us to recover and to start with a clean slate, thus allowing us to be filled with God the Holy Spirit who illuminates truth so that when we examine his word, he allows us to understand it through the human spirit, through God the Holy Spirit, who then illuminates the truth so that we can make adjustments in our personal lives where necessary. So let's just take a moment of silence and pray, and then I'll open with prayer. Let us pray. Father, what a privilege it is to be able to assemble together, to examine your word. We know that this is a high priority, that this is uh, mandated in your word, to study and show ourselves to prove the workman that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We're living in some times now where truth is being questioned, and truth is not even discernible anymore. And so depending on your uh, worldview, You ultimately will arrive at something that will go far, that will go contrary to the Word of God. So help us, Father, as your representatives to stay anchored in your Word and steadfast in the Word so that we can, uh, declare to the world who is dying in their sins that Jesus Christ is our Savior. He is our Lord. He is the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And so, Father, by believing in Him, we can have everlasting life. I pray now that you'll help us to move through this series on basics, so that you'll allow us to discover how the Word of God truly does save us and deliver us, and even spare us from premature death. Help us, Father, through God the Holy Spirit, we ask and pray all of these things through Christ's matchless name in which we pray, amen. Okay, let me put the notes up here so that we can follow together. Okay, so this is the first slide that we're going to look at, and then we're going to advance how the Word can deliver your life. How can it deliver your life? How can it save your life? We've been talking the last several weeks on basics, and so for those of you who are here, listening online or in person, these are the truths that we need to understand and master together as, as a church group, as a church family, because this is what I believe is going to help us navigate through life, especially with all the things that we're going through now. So pay close attention, and we're going to discover how the Word can deliver your life from premature death. So let's see what's in store. <clears throat> So, as you know, we've covered this uh, ad infinitum ad nauseum, right? How many times have we covered phase one, phase two, phase three? Now we're going to see together how this will pull together as we focus in again on phase two salvation. How it saves you from the power of sin and saves you from premature death even. So we're going to be drawing from the book of James. And in fact, I think from this point forward, we're going to be examining a lot of things from the book of James because James is a book about action. He wants us to be doers of the word, not just simply hearers. So we will examine key truths from the book of James, beginning with verse 21 of chapter 1. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, And receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Or another word for soul is life. It's the word "suke." So it would be proper, proper to render it as life, which is able to save your life. It means exactly this in context. The readers or the brethren are already born again and are not in need of being saved, justified, because they're already believers in Christ. But James has covered the death-dealing consequences of sin when you look at the prior context to James 1.21, which is 14 and verses 15, and we'll look at that in just a moment. In this context, the meaning of verse 21 becomes apparent. Although sin can culminate in physical death, the Word of God properly received and applied can preserve physical life. And that's what we're going to look at. But for context, let's look at the previous verse, prior to 21. Look at verses 14 and 15, James 1. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, notice these words here, they're, Pregnant pregnancy terms when desire has conceived, what? It gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown brings forth what? Death. So notice that James affirms that God himself does not tempt anyone. God allows others to engage in temptation. That's called volition. Free will, right? Job is a classic example. We think of Job God himself didn't tempt Job, but he allowed Satan to. He was harassing Job, as you'll recall. We must never charge God with responsibility of our own temptations. Rather, the responsibility is our own because of our own wicked desires. Right? James traces the potentially deadly consequences which man's evil desires can lead to him. The language he uses here is the language of childbearing. That's why he said conceived, gives birth, full grown. So, desire, as if it were a woman, experiences a conception. See right there in verse 15? Then when desire has conceived, there's that conception concept. When desire has conceived and subsequently gives birth to sin... When full grown, leads to death. Death could be taken here as separation uh, from broken fellow, in the sense of broken fellowship. Each one, let's look at verse 14 and 15 again. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And When desire has given birth or conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So, let's follow the chronology here. We'll look at this in just a moment again. But I just wanted you to get the context of 21, which was preceded with 14 and 15. So, I want you to zoom in on the very end of 15. See, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So this is what I've been talking about earlier, where it can save you from death. In other words, if you're living a life of sin, ongoing sin, and we're going to see again the categories of sin, it could lead to death. See, when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, if it's not dealt with in its early stages, it will bring forth death. So again... You have this idea of um, desire experiences conception, and when desire is conceived, it subsequently gives birth to sin when full grown, and it leads to death. It could be separation, cessation of stability, cessation of joy, lack of power, disconnected from God the Holy Spirit, and so on. But I'm going to argue that this refers to premature death. So you'll recall that we have covered this in the past. Remember the, the sins here, the categories of sin. Let me put it up here. Remember this? It could be broken down into three groups, mental, overt, and verbal. This is a, these are sins taken from Romans chapter 1, 18 to 32, you'll recall. So mental sin includes a lust of the heart, a debased mind or warped thinking, maliciousness, vile passions, and you have overt sins, sins that can be seen on the external, you know, damage to physical property, uh, disobedient to parents, inventors of evil things, violence, strife, fighting, verbal sin, uh, backbiting, whispers or gossiping, unforgiving, boasters, you have this, and what this does is it causes you to move away from God. That's just an acronym that I came up with. Uh, when you take the first letter of each category, MOV, it moves you away from God. And technically, in the truest sense of the word, we can never move away from God because he's omnipresent. Plus, he's omniscient, so he knows all things anyway, so we can't hide from God. But it's just a simple reminder, a simple way for us to know that if you commit a mental, overt, or verbal sin, fellowship has been breached. So you're disconnected from God the Holy Spirit. He's still indwelling in you. You can't lose the Holy Spirit, but you can lose the filling. Remember Remember the uh, ministries of God the Holy Spirit with the acronym RIBS, R-I-B-S. You all have ribs, right? In your rib cage. Um, Doctor Chafer said uh, the Holy Spirit's ministry includes ribs, regeneration, indwelling, baptizing, and sealing. It's an easy way to remember what the Holy Spirit does upon faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Is that important to know? Yes. You may not need. You might not need. Think it's important right now because everything is fine. But when you're going through hardship and when you're on a ventilator in the hospital and you're not sure where you stand with God anymore, you're going to need that. You're going to need to know that you've been regenerated, you've been indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, you've been baptized, you've been a part of the body of Christ, and you've been sealed to the day of Christ, the day of redemption. So as such, you are permanently a child of God regardless of how you feel at the moment. So these sins here will put you out of fellowship... it will move you away from God... and this is what James is arguing here... that this could save your soul... you know the word of God that is... because if you are not saved... phase two... you may fall into premature death... which we'll see at the tail end... of James chapter five... so mental, overt, and verbal sins... these three groups of sins... fall into three doors... And I admit that these sometimes will overlap. Sometimes the satanic uh, door will overlap with the flesh, and the world will overlap with the world, or sometimes all three. But each three requires a particular strategy to address the kind of sin. So if Satan is affecting you, if he's harassing you, the Bible says in James four seven to submit to God And resist the devil and he will flee. That's James 4-7 and we looked at that I think three weeks ago. Uh, Submit to God and resist the devil with the word and he will flee. And we look closely at the life of Jesus Christ as he was being challenged by Satan in the, in the wilderness or the, uh, in Matthew chapter 4. When he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and then he was taken up and uh, by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by the devil. And the devil was trying to misquote and mishandle the word of God and challenge Jesus Christ to operate apart from the Father. He couldn't do it. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So every temptation, everything that Satan threw at him, he parried with the word of God. He yielded to the Holy Spirit while at the same time resisted the devil using the Word of God. And that's how you deal with Satan. Now, the world, you'll recall, is really an issue of human viewpoint versus divine viewpoint. What's that mean? Over the course of time, as you stray away, because sometimes the busyness of life will get you so caught up with things that you slowly start to push God to the second, to the third, to the fourth place, He's no longer a priority in your life and so what tends to happen is you slowly regress. You slowly start, instead of getting stronger in your spiritual walk, you're slowly losing it, you're losing the sensitivity to the things of God. So now human viewpoint becomes your dominant perspective. You start to look at life through your human viewpoint, your experiences, your feelings more than anything else. Whereas before, you used to prioritize God and God was the priority in your life. And when I say you, I'm not saying anyone in particular. I'm just saying in general, when we're talking about Category 2, when a person starts to realize that they're, oh my gosh, God is no longer a number one in my life. And how did I get to this point? How did my marriage fall apart? How come I'm in this mess that I'm in now? Well, it's because when we start to prioritize human viewpoint and the things of this world, the details of life, and God is no longer number one, you start making decisions from a position of experience and feelings only rather than the criteria that comes from the Word of God. Which is why I've always championed the importance of putting Bible doctrine as a high priority before anything else, Because it's so easy to default back into your old system, your old way of thinking. And we saw this with the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3. When Paul came after five years, this is a baseline for every church. Five years after they were converted, Paul was arguing with them and he said, You guys should be knowledgeable by now. You should be ready for solid food. But instead, I have to retract and go back to the basic oracles of God. I have to give you milk. Five years later, you're only, the only thing you can receive is milk. Why? He noticed that there is strife, divisions, contentions among the brethren. And as such, he said, well, I can't give you solid food. You're not ready. You're not in a position to receive it. Not when you're acting like mere men. So the spiritual condition of man is related to how they can carry themselves. So if they have envy, strife, divisions, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, that kind of attitude, then Paul says that you're not ready for solid food. I have to go back to the basics, which is milk. So, which again is why we've spent a great deal of time... Zooming in on these things so that when we see it pop, we can make adjustments in our own personal lives, myself included, so that we can make the adjustment and prioritize God because if not, then we're going to slip and slide and then we're going to be swayed primarily in number two, coupled with uh, number three and with the, with the the challenges that come from Satan and the world system. All three are going to hit us hard and we're not even going to know what to do. And remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 23, around there. <clears throat> Anyone who hears these things, sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a person who built his house on a rock. The winds came, the waters came, uh, the storms came. And it stood. It was able to withstand all the elements on the external because it was grounded and built on the foundation of the rock. So Jesus said, those who hear my word and does them is like a person whose life is built on rock or his life could be taken either metaphorically or a literal house as being built on a rock. Either way you look at it, it's just basically saying that when the challenges of life come, that house will remain standing. That person will remain standing. Then you contrast it with another person who hears the word but does nothing with it. When life hits them, they fall and they fall hard. They don't know what to do. They're on the ground. They're squirming around. They can't pick themselves up because they got hit hard They didn't take the the teachings of God's word and make application and so now they fell. So you see these three groups here, they fall into the three doors, either Satan, Satan, the world, or flesh. So moving forward, we're going back now to verse 14 of James 1. Each one is tempted, one is drawn away by his own desires. And let's look closely at verse 14 at this verse 14 here and analyze the the temptation section uh with our own eyes. Let's put on our thinking caps on and let's just see <clears throat> what it says closely. Let's analyze it. James's words are informative here. Okay, look closely. Let me read it one last time for the recording. Each one is tempted. Each one of us is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has given birth or conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So there's this progression here before death. The end result is death. There's desire. That's the word put Uputhamia, I believe, um, desires, but look closely. Desire is the mother of sin, but after sin is brought to birth through lust, it grows and reaches maturity when it is full grown. Then sin, in turn, bears a child as well of its own, which is death. Do you see that? There's a double pregnancy here. You've got um, desire, which is the mother of sin. And after sin is brought to birth through lust, it grows and reaches maturity when it is full grown. Then sin, in turn, bears a child of its own, namely, death. That gives birth. Thanatos is the word there for death. James 1.14 So what am I saying? If you look closely here, there's a progression here. And just like A woman, uh, a mom who gives birth to a child, Uh, there's nine months, right, of pregnancy. So James is using the same kind of terminology. When desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, full term, it brings forth death, or brings forth a child. And so likewise, it's the same with death. When, if we want to see how things fall apart in our, in our own personal lives, It starts with our own personal desires. And once it's conceived and we don't do anything about it, what are those desires? Mental, overt, or verbal. Those categories of sins. Any of those sins there. If we don't squash it, if we don't confess it, if we don't do something about it, if we don't flee, if it's biological, if it's something tampering with our love for God, if we don't fix that right away... When desire has conceived and if we haven't done anything about it, it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown, full term, nine months later, we still haven't done anything about it. We just let it go and ignore it and just say, well, I'll deal with it next week or next month. If we let it go to full term, it will eventually bring forth death and in the past we've studied what death is it could be a cessation of stability cessation of, of of spiritual power no longer the love for god you're now just so you don't you don't have an interest in the things of god you've become you've developed scar tissue in the soul in other words you've developed an an uh, kind of a, a negative feeling towards God and His Word now. All of a sudden, what used to be enjoyable is no longer pleasant anymore. You push it away like it's a, it's like a, it's like a sin almost. Like you, I don't want the Bible anymore. I don't want to go to church. I'm tired of it all. Some people will eventually turn out like that because when desire is conceived and if we don't fix the desire, the, any of the categories of sin, It will eventually give birth to sin and sin when full grown. If we still haven't dealt with it through confession or walking by means of the Spirit or even repentance. Sometimes we have to repent. Sometimes you're going in the opposite direction and instead of going in the right direction, you're going down this pathway in a state where it's completely away from God and if you don't turn around, it gives birth to sin, and sin, if it's not dealt with, can bring forth. What does it say? Death. Right there in James one fourteen. It could result in death. So, the Bible is life saving, and I've been trying to you know teach this for a number of years now that the we must prioritize this because we don't see things like this, because we only want to see God loves me, God is awesome all the time and good all the time, And but we must see these principles here that relate to life itself. This is why some people are stagnant. This is why some people don't care about the Bible anymore because they've there's a disconnect. There. They've allowed their own personal desires to conceive and it gives birth to sin and whatever that sin may be, it could be negative feeling, negative thoughts. It could be uh, mental, overt, or verbal sin. And, it, and when it becomes full bloom and conceived and, and goes into full... When it's fully grown, it brings forth death. And whatever that death looks like, I would argue in James chapter 5 in just a moment that this actually will result in physical death if not addressed ASAP. <clears throat> so now... <clears throat> That's 1.14. So let's look at, again, 1.21. So that we can put it uh, with James 1.22. So that we'll see what the opening of James argues. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to deliver. Remember, save simply means deliver your life. And this is what he argues after flowing from 1415 and then and 21 and now to 22. James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So believers must become doers of the word. Believers must never allow themselves to become mere hearers which is why I went back to the teaching of Jesus when he says, a person who hears my sayings and does them, he's like a person who has built his house on a rock. Whereas the other person is a hearer only, doesn't do what I say, then when they get hit with uh, life's problems, there's a big fall, great is the fall. They, We must obey it. So now that leads me to a very controversial passage that Many, if you haven't seen this as of yet, you will in due time. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? And we're going to see what John MacArthur and the Reformed theologians say about this passage because this is a very um, difficult passage for some. But we're gonna see that it's really not that difficult. That word is sozo in, in orange. Can faith sozo him? Can, can faith save him? In other words. So, suppose someone has faith but does not have works. What then? Can he expect his faith to save him? And that's what we're going to look at and I want to cite John MacArthur from his own commentary, this is taken from his commentary from the book of James, pages, page 119 to 120. Listen closely to what he says. Imagine if I was preaching like this. The genuineness of a profession of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord is evidenced more by what a person does than what he claims. So what's more than what you claim to be is what you do. That's what he's saying here. A person who professes Christ but does not live a Christ-honoring, Christ-obeying life is a fraud. In chapter 2, James twice describes such faith as being dead. You find this in 2.17 as well as 2.26. A person with dead faith does not and cannot produce works that are truly good and righteous. And the absence of such works, listen to this, is evidence of the absence of saving faith. So if your life is not a God-honoring or a God-obeying life, your life is a fraud, according to John MacArthur in his commentary and he cites 217 and 226 and if you have a moment you can look at that now or in the future 217 and 226 and we'll address that later on and that just we're going to see later uh, in just a moment that the idea is is that true works uh faith without works is dead <clears throat> but it's not what John MacArthur is saying here so look closely again at what it says here what does it profit if my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works. We've heard this argument before. Basically, it's the lordship camp that says, and I say lordship, which is another way of saying the reform theologians or a lot of Calvinists will say, you know what, if you're really truly saved, then you should be at church every Sunday. You should not be missing a beat. You should be in all the Bible studies. You should be giving your money because God is first. That's God honoring. This is what John MacArthur is saying here. A person who professes Christ but does not live a Christ-honoring, Christ-obeying life is a phony, is a fraud. And then he cites James 2, chapter 2. Twice describes such faith as being dead. And I, I would agree that it is dead faith. It is dead in the sense that it is useless. A person with dead faith, according to MacArthur, does not and cannot produce works that are truly good and righteous. Really? And the absence of such works is evidence. Evidence of what? Evidence of the absence of saving faith. So that means Winston is really not saved. Don is really not saved. If you have an absence of good works... If you can't produce these good works unless you have genuine faith which is evidenced by a life that's obeying life obeying Christ and is Christ honoring in everything that you do. Is that what it's saying? Let's let's tear, let's take it apart one verse at a time. What does it profit my brethren if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So now, let's put it in context, okay? So that we get the full thrust of what James is arguing here. Look at what it says in 14. What does it profit? What's the benefit if someone says he has faith but does not have works? So you've got all this faith. You go to church, you do all these things, but you don't have works. Can that kind of faith save you? Well, in context he gives an example here. Suppose a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead, or another word for that word dead, is useless. Um, for example, if Jasmine comes up to me and says, Pastor Freddie, you know what, uh, we've been having hardship, Just we've ha- been having a really hard time, and you know, um, we're having difficulty making ends meet, and you know, um, my mom has been feeling well lately, and so we're just struggling, is there any way you can help us out? Uh, hold on, Jasmine, we're in the middle of study right now, and you know what, be warm, be filled. Depart in peace, I'll pray for you, tell your mom I'll pray for her and, you know, God bless her and I'll be praying for her, but right, don't bother me right now, I'm in the middle of a study. James says, what good is it to have all this doctrine, Pastor Freddie? You know all this stuff, but you don't even help the person who is naked and destitute of daily food. Someone says to them, depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. So instead of me going to Jasmine and saying, hold on, let me stop what I'm doing here. This sounds urgent. Jasmine approaches me and says, Pastor Freddie, you know, we're just hit, we've hit rock bottom and a lot of things have changed at work and everything has come to a screeching halt for us. And we can certainly use a little help. I, I'm embarrassed to ask, but is there any way that uh, you can help me? You know, because m- my mom doesn't have clothes anymore and i am we're just having some real tough times. We're going through hardship right now. I'm supposed to stop what I'm doing and take care of Jasmine and her needs. I'm supposed to take care of her. Look closely here. James is arguing if a brother or sister, that is a brethren, a brother or sister in Christ, is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Faith by itself. So here I am, I've got all this faith, I've got all this doctrine. Let's just replace the word faith with doctrine. What good is it? You have all this doctrine by itself if it does not have works to accompany it. What kind of works? The kind of works that will help this brother or sister who's naked and destitute and in need of daily food. What good is it to have all this stored up doctrine? You got all your PowerPoint slides. You got your notebooks open. You're writing all this copious notes. But when there's a need, you fail to act upon it. What good is it? That faith is useless. It's dead. He doesn't say I'm not saved. He just says faith, hopistis in the Greek, that faith, hopistis by itself is faith if it does not have works accompanying faith. If you don't have any works to back up the faith that you so studied, it is useless. Kind of like the car in the parking lot right now. Many of you drove your cars here. If your battery is dead, it's useless. It's good for nothing, right? So likewise, if you are a believer in Christ and you know your brother or sister in Christ is in need of help, James is saying, help them out. Be a doer of the word, not just simply a hearer. That's the whole theme now. That's the whole argument of this book. He wants us to put faith. He wants us to put feet to our faith. He wants us to be doers of the word, not just simply hearers of the word. Everybody can congregate and sit together, but we're not a social club. We're a church family. We should be pulling together. If you know that someone is in need of something, someone is in the hospital, I know Rudy and Rod has shared their examples in the past and uh, how Rod was in the hospital recently, and so Rudy was able to talk to him, and we Rod was even joining us in Bible class while he was still in the hospital. So we were encouraging him, but the truth is he was encouraging us because he prioritized Bible doctrine. He put the Word of God as a priority that in spite of the fact that he was in the hospital, he linked in through Zoom and joined us. Why? Because he found stability and enjoyment of life, and he knew that his, his life was in God's hands. So when he prioritizes God like that, there's nothing more comforting, nothing more stabilizing, when you know where you stand with the living God. So in, in this context, if someone is in need of help, daily food, clothing, your response shouldn't be, well, you know, depart in peace, be warm and filled. Your response is to give to them, help them. You're part of the family. You're part of the hands of God. We're different parts of the body of Christ. Eyes, hands, feet, nose, and so on. And so we should be looking out for the interest of each other. And especially now with the way the church is going, all the more reason to pull together. If we pull together and we continue to apply the word of God in our own personal lives, watch as we thrive. Watch as God is being honored by our actions. Because if we lift high the cross of Christ, and if we exalt Him, He draws all people to Himself. And it's only going to be done through principles like this applied in our own personal lives. It's not a chapter and verse kind of thing only. It's the application, it's the doing of the Word of God that becomes alive and powerful when we start to synchronize it together internally as a local body of Christ and start to use it and God sees it and then we start to see the manifestation of His grace and His love and His power as as it's being exhibited in the life of His local church. So again, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warm and filled, But you do not give them the things which are what? Needed for the body, what does it benefit? Does thus faith by itself, doctrine by itself, if it does not have works, is useless? It can't save you. It can't deliver you. It can't help this brother or sister in Christ if you're just going to say be warm and be filled. It can't save them and it can't save you if you're out of fellowship with God because you know to help someone and instead of helping them you do nothing. That's what it that's what's the problem going on in verse 15 to 17. And then of course we hear this verse every so often uh where I remember when I was uh talking heavily on salvation and oh, all you do is believe, believe in Jesus. You know what? Even the demons believe. That doesn't it say that in James 2:19? It does. But look closely. But before we address this, I want to, I want you to see two other passages and I might have to open up uh, the Bible for the passage in Acts. <clears throat> in Acts 16, let me read the full context so that we can see and we won't take um, too long on this, although it's somewhat of a long passage. But it's important that we don't miss this because I want you to see the full impact of Acts 16 all the way down to 31. I'm reading from Acts chapter 16, beginning with verse 16. I want you to get the flow and the sense of what the author is saying here. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us. So here's a person who was possessed by the, a demon, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. So somehow she was able to speak things related to the future, kind of like uh, telling the lotto numbers or something, and was able to give her masters much profit, verse 16. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, these men... Here's the woman who is possessed. Now listen to what she says. These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Is that a bad thing? No. She's basically saying these guys here are telling us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. Verse 18. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her and he came out of her that hour, that very hour. But when her master saw that their hope for profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. They brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up against them and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded to be, commanded them to be beaten with rods. So now they're being beat up, right? Flogged. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, Paul and Silas, and fastened their feet in the stocks. Listen to this. Verse 25, Acts 16. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. So they were thrown in the prison, they were flogged, they were beat, whipped. And the prisoners were listening. What What were they listening to at midnight? At midnight, they heard them praying and singing hymns to God. Paul and Silas. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's chains were loosed. Can you imagine that at midnight you're singing you're you're praying, and then you you heard a massive earthquake, it shook the foundation of the prison itself, and all the doors were open, and everyone's chains were loosed. What's that mean? we can get out we can we're free and the keeper of the prison awakened from sleep and seeing that the prison doors open supposing the prisoners had fled drew his sword and was about to commit suicide about to kill himself why because he knew that if they were if they all escaped under his watch that would cost him his life so instead of being Um, killed by them. He decided he'll just kill himself. So, But Paul called out with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm. We are all here. We didn't leave. We're here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. He was scared. He was terrified. He said, He brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? 31, right in front of you. They said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And you can read the rest of the passage 33, 34, and 35, they were cleaned up, and the family believed as well. I want to point out that in Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you, the Philippian jailer, will be saved, and your household will also be saved if they follow suit. So, if your family follows you in believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, they too will be saved. It's not that if Paul believes, then automatically their family is saved. So, I just wanted to make that correction because sometimes people will misunderstand this to mean, Well, as long as you believe, then everybody else is going to automatically be be saved as well. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household, if they also believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I, I use Acts sixteen twenty nine to thirty one to show you that the context here for believing what to believe in is to be saved. In order to be saved, the Philippian jailer said, What must I do? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Clear enough, right? Acts sixteen, twenty nine to thirty one. And then, of course, a verse that we're all familiar with, probably one of my favorite, if not favorite, verses of all time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but instead have what? Everlasting life. So you're saying, okay, Pastor Freddie, um, we know this. Why are you showing us John 3.16, Acts thirty 16, one? Well, because I want us to go back now to this passage here. You believe that there is one God and you do well. Even the, de- the demons believe and tremble. So, th- my point in bringing this out is to show you that this is not salvific. This is not about how to be saved. This is not how to get into heaven. This has nothing to do whatever with salvation, phase one, justification or phase two, or phase three. Look closely at what it's saying. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe in Trumble. They believe in that. What are they believing in? Are they believing in Jesus Christ? They believe that there is only one God. That's called monotheism. That's not salvation. The demons believe that God is one. So what? It's not talking about salvation. So when someone argues that you've got to do more than believe, you've got to believe that he's the Son of God, that he was sinless, that he died on the cross, if you use verses that show that, then sure, we can certainly incorporate that. 1 Corinthians 15 does talk about Jesus went on the cross, died, was buried, on the third day he rose again, according to the scripture. There's nothing wrong with that. But as long as we fill in the data and explain the context of it all, then sure, we can we can incorporate that. I would say that's discipleship. We should teach them about Jesus going on the cross, dying for the sins, being the propitiation. Sure, no problem. But to go here and say, see, Freddie, you can't just believe in Jesus, even the demons believe. But that's not what it says that the demons also believe. It says the demons believe that there's one God. That's not the same thing as believing in Jesus. They believe God is one. Because they know the truth of God. There's only one Yahweh. There's only one God. No God before me. No God formed after me. They know God. They're at odds with Him right now. And they are in this world with a third of the angels. Satan and a third of the angels, which are probably in the billions, are war are swarming the world swaying the culture to believe what it currently believes now, trying to distract us away from the spiritual things so that we will not prioritize God and tell people about the grace of God and the love of God that's ultimately rooted in the person of Jesus Christ so that when they take their last breath, they go straight into the lake of fire rather than in the presence of God. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So it's not until we take seriously the whole teaching of God's Word from beginning to end, study it closely in a systematic fashion, categorically, you study all the key Bible doctrines verse by verse, methodically using the languages, comparing it with the original language and ensuring that we're arriving at a proper interpretation and understanding of the text so that we can make application. Many of you listening right now are Filipino. You know that sometimes when you say a joke, how many times have I asked you, you give a joke in Tagalog or Kapampangan or another whatever dialect, you give a a joke in Tagalog, for example, and you say it, and everybody's laughing hilariously. They're just on the floor. And then I say, repeat it. Tell me it in English. And you're going to say, oh, you're go- it's not going to have the same impact. Why? Because it's lost in the, in the language. And so likewise, you need someone who is well studied in the scriptures. It doesn't mean I'm perfect. I still have shortcomings. But I go in and I study it closely. I study it carefully based on the languages. And I, I examine it. And I approach it with a, a strong hermeneutic. And I ensure that I make sure I'll sometimes, many times cross-reference it with others who are, who've covered the passages in the past, compare my notes with their notes and see if I'm coming up with the same thing. Or many times I'll arrive at something completely different and I'll just have to trust that the Holy Spirit is allowing me to see something that maybe I haven't seen before or someone hasn't seen before and then I'll, I'll uh, make application to it and teach it. But the point is, is that when you are going to get into any kind of good Bible study or any church that's going to teach you the Word of God, you have to make sure that they have the training, the appropriate training to cover and cut through the Word of God. You have to rightly divide the Word of Truth. And there are a lot of people who may not be able to do that for whatever reason. They don't have the training, they haven't gone they haven't had they they choose not to have the training but it's kind of like uh if you're going to go have surgery done you're going to want to make sure your doctor knows exactly what he's doing you don't want him to just say well i got my training from youtube i've watched uh, enough youtube videos on how to do back surgery and neck surgery leg knee surgery knee replacement you want someone that has the experience who is trained by someone who's been there before and who was mentored before, so that you know that your your life is in good hands. Likewise, I take seriously what God has called me to do. And so, as we continue to lock shields together, my challenge to you all is to continue to get grounded in the Word of God, continue to invite people to church, and invite them via Zoom, uh, invite them on Sunday afternoons, regardless of who's there or who's not there, Pull together and watch as God continues to orchestrate his perfect will in our life as we continue to put him first. Because the Bible talks about if we put him first, if we lift high the cross, he will draw all men to himself. And I was just reading just last night before I went to uh, uh, to bed that there every year 4,000 churches close a year. 4000 churches close a year. That's a staggering statistic. So we're still together, you know, we've been going through hardship, going through challenges, but we're still together and we still have a nucleus that I believe if we will lock shields together, we can watch God unfold his perfect will as we stand together uh praising God. Bringing honor to his name and to his name alone. So, having said that, we're actually done. Let me make sure I don't have anything else here on the slides here. And uh, oh, let me just—there is one more slide here I wanted to show you about the <clears throat> the James passage where death. Look what it says here in James 5:19. Let's close it out with this. Verse here and then we'll close. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back. Verse 20, James five twenty. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a suke or a person or a life from death and cover a multitude of sins. So we're in the business of not only evangelizing the lost, but getting others who are off base and who are wandering from the truth. And if someone turns them back, guess what it says? Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So, anyone who turns a sinner from the error of his way is in reality turning him aside from a sinful path that can lead him to physical death, it's right here in front of you, right? Thus, a believer's efforts after uh, efforts for the restoration of his brother to the pathway of obedience are life-saving in scope. If successful, he will save a soul or a suke or a person, life, from death. But he will do more than that. Since the restored person receives this gracious forgiveness of God, that the many sins created and multiplied by a person who turns away from God are all removed from the view when the man turns back to God. The word rendered cover means conceal. The restored sinner's multitude of sins are now out of sight through the pardon he has received. And the loving brother or sister who turns him back is credited not only with the preservation of his fellow Christian's life, but also with making him clean. Though, of course, it's the Lord who actually cleanses him. Thanks to such personal involvement, the formerly erring believer is both physically alive and spiritually clean. So, as you can see... Now that we've took the bookends, the opening of James 1 and closing it with James 5:19 to 20, we can see that the word of God can save one soul. So it can save us if we receive the implanted word with humility and meekness and make application to it, not just being hearers of the word but doers of the word. And then we can see that the app uh, the Practical application was seen in chapter 2 as to when you have an individual who is in need of help and instead of just saying, oh, be warm and be filled, we'll pray for you, you do something about it, you are now applying the Word of God. You are a doer of the Word of God. And in the end, you can actually, if you know anyone who has been wandering from the truth, if you turn them back, it's possible, it's not guaranteed here, It's possible you may save that person from death. You see the word there? Death is death. No matter how you slice it, you can turn his way, his or her way and save that person from death while covering a multitude of sins. Why a multitude of sins? Because when they're in error and they're going in the opposite direction, they start to, they start to commit all kinds of sins along the way that pathway of reversionism that path, pathway of backsliding you know there's a multitude of sins that are start starting to be amassed as you live contrary to the word of God so hopefully you're able to see something today I know we've been on basics and a lot of this is something that I think we all need to be reminded of so that we can see we can help someone who's gone the opposite direction. We can see the value of the Word of God in our own personal life. And so having said that, let me now close in a word of prayer, and then I will see you again soon, if not Tuesday or Wednesday, uh, next week, Sunday, same link and same time. For now, let us pray. Father, thank you as always for giving us this opportunity to stand together uh, as a body of believers. Father, we are nothing without you. Uh, Were it not for the grace of God, we would be headed for destruction, the lake of fire, but because of our faith in you, Uh, We are adopted into the royal family of God, making us one family, those who are believers in Christ, those on Zoom, those on in Elisa Viejo, and those who are listening to this recording later on. If you are a believer in Christ, then you too are part of the royal family of God via adoption as you place your faith in Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that as we continue to move through the holiday seasons that you would allow us to get things done. I know the busyness of the holidays sometimes will cause us to be stressed out and we'll start to forget things. We might be even angry at each other because we're trying to do so many things all at one time. But help us to sense that you are the one who we are celebrating ultimately come the 25th of December. So we should be relaxed. We should have a relaxed mental attitude, recognizing that we're approaching a day that had forever changed the orientation of humanity for those who have placed their faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. Allow us to relax and to enjoy as we approach the 25th of December, recognizing, Lord, that it's your birthday, not ours. And so we're grateful for this time. Keep us all safe. Put that wall of fire around each person, keeping them all safe from COVID and any flus. I know that the flu is running rampant these days, and I just pray, Lord, that you would keep everyone safe. Anyone that is struggling with any kind of physical ailments, physical health issues or challenges, I pray, Lord, that you will stabilize their condition so that they can truly enjoy the holidays with their loved ones. Thank you, Father, for hearing us. We love you, we praise you, and we ask all of these things through Christ's matches name in which we pray. Amen.